um, Canada looking at the genetic causes of childhood cancer, specifically being able to um, sequence the genetic uh, code in the cancer of um, now, currently all children with high-risk cancer, and ultimately, uh, we hope, um, all children with cancer. Welcome to On Air with Chai, a podcast that inspires, brings hope, shows resilience, and strength. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of On Air with Chai. On today's episode, we have the privilege of speaking with the Head of Pediatric Oncology and Hematology at SickKids Hospital in Toronto, Dr. Jim Whitlock. In this conversation today, we cover an array of topics and what is an extremely open, honest, and insightful conversation. I hope you get out of it as much as we did. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of On Air with Hi. I'm Brian Strasberg, and as always, joined by my trusty helper, executive producer, executive director of High Lifeline Canada, Morty Rothman. Hello. And today, we are joined by Dr. Whitlock of Sick Kids Hospital. Dr. Whitlock's research interests include the biology and treatment of childhood acute leukemias, the development of new drugs for the treatment of childhood cancers, and the biology of treatment of histiocytic disorders. He was the inaugural vice chair for new agents in relapse studies for the acute lymphoblastic leukemia committee of children's oncology group. He is the lead investigator for an international phase one trial of nelabin combination therapy for relapsed T-cell ALL through the Therapeutic Advances in Childhood Leukemia Consortium and served two terms as the first chair of TACL's Steering and Prioritization Committee. He's a past president of the Histiocyte Society, an international scientific organization which supports research in and conducts clinical trials for histiocytic disorders. He's the current chair of C-17, which is a national organization for Canadian childhood cancer and blood disorder centers. Welcome. Wow, that's a lot. That is a lot. You guys have resumes like... (laughs) Well, so the truth is, I'm really a hillbilly from East Tennessee that was fortunate enough to have parents who really um, believed in an education. And I uh, was fortunate to be the first uh, generation of my family to go to university, ended up going to medical school, ended up in academic medicine, ended up being inspired by a a wonderful man named John Lukens, who was a pediatric uh, oncologist um, during my training. That led to me entering this field um, about uh, uh, 12 years ago, I decided to come to Canada. And uh, it's been a phenomenal experience um, being at one of the great children's hospitals of the world and being able to work with colleagues and families and advocates across the country to try and help um, uh, these these incredible children um, who face life-threatening illnesses um, and ha- how we're making so much progress now um, on all fronts. That's amazing. So can we start at the very beginning of how this all happened? I mean, from Tennessee to Toronto, how how does that happen? Well, so I, uh, um, I went to um, medical school um, in Tennessee at Vanderbilt University decided to stay there and complete my training um, uh, with a pediatrics residency. Um, met and was inspired by John Lukens, who was my primary mentor, um, and uh, wanted to stay and train with him. And then um, was uh, fortunate in joining the faculty uh, to be able to actually work with him as a pediatric hematologist oncologist. What was it and about? then it was even, 
Sorry, what was it about him that made you, uh, that drew you to him? Um, I think he was the kindest and gentlest and most committed man uh, that I had ever met. Um, I consider him in many ways from an academic and professional um, uh, perspective, um, uh, you know, my, my uh, career father. He was just such a wonderful role model. He was calm and collected and inspiring. Um, he worked so hard, um, incredible hours, and it, it just was so wonderful to his patients, so reassuring, so full of hope. Um, and um, I, I learned so much from him. It was such a privilege and an and, and honor to be able to have worked um, uh, with him and then for him uh, uh, as a faculty member in his program. And then ultimately, uh, when he decided to retire, to be able to um, take over in his role. I, that, that, that was my dream job for many years. Um, and then after I'd been at Vanderbilt for um, really all of my career, um, you know, it, I, I began to wonder, is this the only place I'm ever going to work? Um, I had friends who worked here that I'd met through some of those international organizations that you were so kind to mention earlier. And uh, one of them said, you know, Jim, we're going to be looking for a new, uh, we're going to be looking for a new leader for the HEMOP program. Um, I think, I think you might be a good fit. And um, so I uh, came up and interviewed and I knew within 15 minutes of walking through the front doors of the uh, uh, sick kids into that incredible atrium and, and meeting some people that this was a place that I would uh, be proud to be a part of. And it fortunately worked out that way. And uh, here I am 12 and a half years later. What brought you into childhood cancers? Well, that's, that's, uh, that's a great question. Um, I think part of it was that so many people, um, uh, especially when I started my career compared to now, were almost afraid of these children. These were children, I mean, if you, if you have cancer, um, you know, um, before we had effective therapies, uh, therapies, most children with cancer were going to die of their disease, and people were afraid to um, work with them. I remember one of the stories that John Lukens told me that inspired me so much. When he first um, uh, was training, and this was in an era in the um, late 1950s and early 1960s, um, he and his colleagues were accused of being unethical because they were developing new treatments for children with acute lymphocytic leukemia, the most common of childhood cancers, and a disease that, that at that time was uniformly fatal. And there were, there were physicians in the medical community who felt that it was unethical to treat these children because you would just prolong uh, their suffering. And if it weren't for pioneers like John Lukens and, and, and others like him, um, we might not be where we are today, but they pushed forward. And the reality is now, that um, almost 90% of children with this most common cancer, um, ALL, um, at least the standard form of it, um, can now be cured. And so, and, 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 and we have reason to think that, that, that there may be a day when we can cure every child with acute lymphocytic leukemia and other types of cancer. So in just a generation or two, we've gone from um, zero to, you know, um, 85 to 90%. That's stunning. And that's something that I think um, our society as a whole, at least in the first world, um, should be very proud of. 
um, that children here now can have a tremendous, um, most children can have a, um, a successful outcome. We still have a lot of work to do for that last 15% of children who, aren't can't, um, who are not able to get a cure. And we have to remember that these children all pay a terrible price with the, the treatments that we've used over the last 50 or 60 years to, uh, to uh, achieve those cures. But things are changing um, for the better in a remarkable way. And uh, um, I have every reason to believe that uh, someday all children will have, uh, have a cure um, and the price won't be as drastic as what they have to pay now. Well, I do have numbers on that because it is very interesting that you bring that up because I just jumped onto, um, I guess, Canada.ca website, wanted some statistics on, on children's cancers in Canada. It was saying around 1,000 kids a year in Canada end up with cancer. 311 cases of them are, the leuke are leukemia. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason for that? Is there a specific reason that that cancer is triggering kids the most? Um, I think, yes, we're beginning to understand that. It's, it's a bit, uh, bit um, medical ease, but if, if you want to talk about that, I'm happy to do it. I think it's basically um, related to the fact that um, you know, our immune systems uh, um, develop over a number of years. And um, the, the acute lymphocytic leukemia, the most common type of cancer in children, representing the bulk of the numbers that you just mentioned, um, arises in lymphocytes, which are a part of our immune system. And the most common peak age for children with ALL is between four and six years of age. And that's at a time when the immune system is really robustly developing um, with uh, genes um, that, that um, lead to the diversity of our immune system that help us recognize many different types of infections are being scrambled in order to um, create that genetic diversity. And occasionally, the, this cutting and pasting of genes goes awry. Um, and we think in many instances that that's the trigger for childhood ALL. So it may be the childhood, the, you know, the, the cost of, of um, you know, us as a species having a robust immune system is that some children, that, that, that immune development will go awry when we're young children and, and lead to um, a, a disease that uh, without treatment um, is uniformly fatal. Is, uh, does that mean that perhaps looking at the parents and their predisposition to certain genetics um, might be an answer to kind of eradicating this. Well, I don't think it's a. Um, um, I don't think it's an answer to eradicating childhood ALL. There are other ways that, that that prevention may become possible. But you've also touched on another very important point, which is coming out of studies, including a, a national study uh, here in in um, Canada, looking at the genetic causes of childhood cancer, specifically being able to um, sequence the genetic uh, code in the cancer of um, now, currently all children with high-risk cancer, and ultimately, uh, we hope, um, all children with cancer. And what we're finding is a surprising number of um, known or recognized cancer predisposition syndromes, uh, what you refer to as you know, family cancers, um, where there may, there may be a germline component um, uh, that predisposes them to these cancers and that really wasn't recognized in some childhood cancers. And so this is a rapidly changing field. And 
you're 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 correct that that the best way to um, ensure success with children's cancer um, is to figure out how to keep it from ever happening. I think we're um, not quite there yet, but um, again, that's a that's a very promising area of research. You mentioned something a bit earlier um, with how we're treating the kids. Uh, I guess in the earlier days with with with, uh, with the cancer treatments and. I found an article that you uh, were in a bit ago. I'm not too sure how long ago it was, but you mentioned that the way we're treating patients now with cancer is by slashing them, burning them, and poisoning them. Essentially, that's that that that's that's um, <laughs> shocking, but but true. Right. Yes, slashing is surgery. Right. Burning is radiation therapy, and I, I think um, many of my colleagues um, across the country and around the world would agree that you know the traditional forms of chemotherapy are controlled poisoning. So medieval, it's pretty barbaric. Uh, when you put it in those terms, it absolutely is. And it works 85% of the time. That's what's so remarkable that with this, um, these brutal archaic approaches, we can, we can cure children 85% of the time in the first world. But then you continue on saying that when they get into older ages, around 45 years of age, they're going to start having other chronic illnesses that they're going to be dealing with because of these treatments. So how I know you're doing research on new medications, new developments, ways of treating these cancers. So how is your uh, research and the way you're looking at these problems going to change the way that they're being treated now? So uh, that's a that's a great question. Um, and when I talk about this, this isn't me. This is the royal we. These are people um, uh, at my hospital, at SickKids, across Canada, across North America, uh, collaborators in Europe and Asia and around the world that are making these breakthroughs. And then in many cases, there are also um, uh, um, researchers that are looking into adult cancers, which share some, but certainly not all features with childhood cancer. And two things that that um, are changing the face of childhood cancer and the way we treat this disease um, uh, uh, are uh, immunotherapy and precision medicine. Um, immunotherapy is um, learning how to harness the power of a patient's own immune system to treat their cancer. We've known for decades that the immune system can recognize some types of cancer, but its ability to react has not been robust enough, if you will, to um, be able to have much of a clinical impact. And so now through decades of basic cancer research, um, we are learning how to, how to harness that immune system and help those um, immune cells better recognize the cancer cells, which in some cases cloak themselves. If you're a, if you're a Trekkie and you remember the Klingon cloaking, uh, they can do, that's what cancer cells can do. And we found ways unmask them so that they can be attacked by the immune system. We also have learned um, how to um, help educate uh, or train um, the immune cells to seek out and find leukemia cells in the bloodstream and attack them in a much more powerful way than they would be able to do themselves. Um, I know that some people um, don't like the analogy of cancer as a war, um, but if you, if you see what some of these children go through, I think it's apt. And um, uh, this is like, you know, being able to, instead of carpet bombing everything, we're able to use 
smart bombs that will just seek out and attack the cancer cells um, and spare the normal cells of much of the damage that chemotherapy and radiation therapy um, have traditionally caused. I appreciate how straightforward and blunt you are with all this. It's great to hear, especially from the medical side of things. Um, it sounds like you guys are kind of going more towards a homeopathic kind of feel with it, training the the patient's own immune system to get them to understand how to fight off these diseases. Is that correct? Or No, my understanding of homeopathy is using um, a very small doses of traditional medications to treat diseases. And I don't think that's at all what we're doing. What we're doing is really a paradigm shift. Um, uh, chemotherapies, uh, traditional chemotherapy drugs um, are uh, primarily poisons, many that come from natural, natural substances that come from bacteria or plants and some property of them may have been changed or the amounts that we give um, may be uh, uh, very different than what occurs in nature. Um, uh, and again, when we find the right recipe um, and the right schedule to administer those drugs, um, we can get rid of the bad cells um, and um, allow the normal cells to persist, although they may be affected or damaged in some way. So this is really talking about just what I would call a completely different approach. Um, harnessing the immune system is something that, in, that uh, is relatively new. It's, it's leading to, um, I think, what would have been viewed as miracles as early as, as recently as 20 years ago. Um, uh, at patients that we had no effective treatment for, um, now we can cure um, a significant number of those patients when all of the traditional treatments have failed. And so this is the approach for any drug development is to take these new therapies that have not been evaluated uh, previously in, in adults or children um, and to first evaluate them in patients for whom these standard treatments have failed. And if they work, as, as uh, many of these new treatments are, then we use them to treat earlier, earlier in the course. And so I can imagine um, um, a day, perhaps in the not too distant future, when all of these um, uh, poisons and, and, and slashing and burning um, not only are supplemented or assisted in the worst cases with these new approaches, but actually replaced by these new approaches. And that is what's going to allow us to be able to reduce this incidence of, of close to 60% in adult survivors of childhood cancer um, having some sort of long-term side effect from the current treatments that the immune treatments may not cause any long-term permanent damage. And some of these um, precision medicines that target genetic changes that are present in the cancer cells and only in the cancer cells. And again, um, in many instances can spare uh, many of the traditional side effects that uh, conventional chemotherapy causes. Um, uh, the, these are medicines that can change cancer from a life-threatening disease that requires very strong, very radical treatments to a disease that's chronic and a patient can just wake up in the morning and, and take a pill. Uh, and as long as they take their pill, their cancer will remain in remission. And we've got examples of, 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 of all of these things here at SickKids and, and other hospitals around uh, Canada. I, I think it's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot, so much to unpack from what you just said. Um, and, and I guess one of the things that, struck me is uh, how collaborative sick kids is being with what sounds like research around the world. Um, it sounds like, like it's such a collaborative process that, I mean, you mentioned Asia and Europe and the United States, and it's, um, it's amazing to me that people around the world 
are all cued in and included and working together towards this common goal, which um, I think is something that we don't talk about enough, perhaps. Well, so um, necessity is the mother of invention. Childhood cancer, in the big scheme of things, is a relatively rare disease in some ways. And yet in other ways, it's the most common disease-related killer of children in the U.S. and Canada and many other first world countries. Um, and so when my um, mentor, John Lukens, was working um, uh, in early in his career, the only way that he could succeed is to work with other people who had the same goal in, in order to collect enough information about these new treatments to really determine if they were working. And so collaboration in pediatric cancer has been essential to our success. It's, it's, um, it's woven into, in, into what we do. Um, one of the reasons that I decided to come to Canada is that um, Canadians are particularly uh, uh, collaborative. Um, I, you have to remember, so I'm, I'm now a dual citizen. Um, uh, in, in the U.S., you know, healthcare to some extent is a business. And so hospitals there um, may have to compete with patients for business. In Canada, um, it's, it's a right. And um, uh, I think here there's a much more collaborative atmosphere because, um, you know, we, we don't have the same uh, expectations about what, um, what our, our hospitals have to achieve um, uh, in terms of profit. And so, you know, we, we have a, a network across uh, Canada, uh, several networks, actually, uh, re uh, research networks and educational networks and advocacy networks. Um, I think a, a really exciting um, uh, uh, advance that's been made that was announced just last week um, by uh, the Canadian Institutes for Health Research uh, and a, a part of the federal government is a grant, a $23 million grant um, for um, all of us across Canada who work in the childhood cancer field to form a Canadian Pediatric Cancer Consortium. Um, this funding was brought about by um, advocates like Helena's Hope and ACORN and other groups um, that were able to share their stories uh, with decision makers um, uh, and for the first time for the federal government to provide funding for uh, research and to childhood cancer that would lead to improvements in outcome and would also lead to uh, uh, fewer long-term side effects of the treatment. Um, but this, but importantly, this organization also includes advocates and patients and families who are sitting at the same table with the doctors and the, and the scientists who are doing the research. And that's really a novel approach. And that's why I think this new organization is so important um, and, and has the chance to really um, change the face of how we work together for, to, to um, improve and hopefully eradicate childhood cancer in the coming years. The CPCC, it's available. Um, if you look at the CIHR Facebook page, the announcement is there, uh, uh, their website. And um, this organization will very shortly be having a pretty robust um, media presence. That's, uh, that's incredible. Congratulations for that. I'm sure that that's been uh, years and years of your work and a number of people's work uh, to, to create that and get those, get those funds. I know um, it was a big deal under the Harper government when um, Prime Minister Harper gave funding to 
parents or caretakers of people taking care of people with cancer and i know that was a big deal as well so um this sounds uh, this sounds truly incredible so um that's that, that's great thank you yeah it's a it's a dream come true for many of us in the childhood cancer community um but but this is an opportunity that we have to seize and we want to bring together as many members uh of of, of uh the canadian community that that are um working in various areas and figure out how we can collaborate more effectively to come back to the point you were making earlier um, to help support uh, these children and their families, um, not only through the, the difficult journeys that they face, but how children in some provinces um, may not have a, a, a access to some of the treatments that, that we just talked about that, that can now offer children who previously had no hope, can offer them a realistic chance of a cure. Um, and so one of the things is about providing access um, to all Canadian children for these marvelous therapies, because uh, the reality is not all of them have. Well, it does sound like you're the this uh, this group is taking a very different approach in terms of including uh, patients and families, and I think that that's uh, that's a breath of fresh air to see uh, researchers kind of look at you know the humans behind the research, so to speak. Um, is that a trend that you see happening across the board, or is that particularly with with pediatric cancers? Um, and then I'd like to get into some of the conversation that we kind of touched on uh, really before we started the podcast, which was um, some of the patient advocacy work that's changing at uh, at sick kids and things of that nature. So um, I think that collaboration um, has happened um, between patients and families and physicians and researchers at some level um, for, for many years. I mean, there are grateful patients and families who fundraise, who give money to sick kids and to their other children's hospitals in Canada and the US and other countries um, who support this. Um, but, but I think that collaboration has not been as deep or fulsome um, as it could be and as it really needs to be. And uh, that's what this consortium um, aims to change. So um, I think what we've learned is that, that you know, physicians and scientists can have all of these wonderful discoveries that they're making, but they're very abstract. And, um, you know, you, you, you read the, all of the things that I was involved in and, and, you know, it sounds great, but what does it mean? It's a snoozer, right? When you hear a patient like Helena Kirk, um, uh, who is the Helena of Helena's Hope, talk about her journey through cancer um, and how many friends she met during her treatment um, she lost because they were not the, the, the regular treatments, the standard treatments, the slashing, burning and poisoning didn't cure their cancer and they, they couldn't get to the other treatments that were becoming available that were admittedly experimental, but they had no opportunity to try that experiment. Um, when you hear her talk about that, you'll, you'll begin to understand, I began to understand the power of advocacy, particularly in the childhood community. And I believe every patient and every parent has a story to tell like that. Um, and what we have to do is work with them to be able to better tell their stories um, and, to, and to understand how those stories can be translated into achieving what they need. Um, which is not just better medical treatments, but better support, fewer long-term side effects, um, and and being able to you know get patients who need these promising new treatments um, to either 
take those patients to the to the to the treatments to things like clinical trials, which are treatments that are not yet um, proven and um, established as a standard of care, or an even more radical idea that we're really committed to in the CPCC um, is to be able to take the trials to the patients. What about children who may live in a northern community and have to travel hundreds of miles um, to receive a, a treatment at a cancer center? Um, and if they want to participate in a clinical trial of a new drug, they may have to, to literally move to um, a hospital that has that. But, you know, um, because of COVID, we've learned to do so much in a more remote fashion. Um, Health Canada has recognized this. And so we are working with Canadian regulators and, and other colleagues to figure out how in a, in a, in a safe and effective way, we can begin to change this paradigm of having to bring children to Toronto or to Montreal or to Vancouver access these new therapies, and at least in some instances, allow those children to get high quality care much closer to home, which will reduce the burden on those children, improve the, their quality of life, reduce the expenses that their families have to endure to come to these major urban areas and get this treatment. Um, so many exciting things to think about uh, going forward. It's, uh, it's incredible. I think, um, you know, hearing you speak about the people behind the research, uh, you know, it is, it's actually a, you know, a major trend, I think, even in the business world where people are saying, you know, you got to really get to know your customer. You really got to understand who that person is um, and, you know, what their likes and dislikes are in order to really, uh, really, um, you know, build your business. So uh, it's, it's incredible for me to hear a researcher such as yourself and a doctor such as yourself really taking the time to understand that is, is was that an evolution for you or was that the way you were trained? Because if it was an evolution, I'd love to understand that. Um, if it was the way you were trained and who you are as a person, I apologize. I just don't, I, I, you know, we're meeting for the first time now. So we need more doctors like that. <laughs> Certainly. Well, it, it's a profoundly um, insightful question. Um, no, I was, I, I think I had excellent medical training. Um, and, uh, you know, all of us in, in, at the medical school I went to, um, had to take a class in psychology. Um, I was very, uh, that class was very benefit, how to talk to your patients. Um, and I was, um, I attended that as a medical student and I was honored to be invited, um, to actually give one of those lectures when I became a faculty member at Vanderbilt. Um, having said all that, um, I am learning to completely change the way I think about how I relate to um, advocates and to patients and families when we're talking about, um, you know, health policy uh, and, and access issues that affect the whole country. Um, and you use the past tense. Um, I'm still evolving in this um, but because it's, it's, it's changing how I work every day. I'm used to working in a system um, where, you know, I'm the, the head of a program. I make decisions and working with people. And I believe, I want to believe I'm collaborative in how we make those decisions together. But I'm having to learn to listen in a new way and to listen to voices um, that are very different from the voices that I work with here in the hospital every day. Um, and, you know, um, sometimes it, voices that, that have been so ignored that they don't really know how to, to be able to share with people like me 
what they've been through, what they're facing, what their challenges are. Um, and so that is absolutely a work in, pre in, in progress. And um, it's been um, both compelling for me and um, sometimes frustrating because the way I'm used to working to being, you know, um, very efficient and very productive, um, that doesn't always work when I'm working with people whose voices haven't been heard. In fact, it usually doesn't work. And so I have to slow down and I have to listen in a different way and work harder to be inclusive. Um, but what I've already learned in, in the short time that we've been working on the CPCC is that if we're really going to build a, a community um, where everyone has a voice, this is absolutely necessary. Yeah, it's uh, it's sometimes hard for uh, for people to kind of slow down and, and give give that opportunity to others to kind of share in the way that they need to share. So uh, really kudos to you for, for, you know, noticing that and, and, and making sure that that's happening on, on the level that it seems to be happening. And that's, that's, uh, well, that's incredible. Let's, let's be clear. It's not just me. There are a number of people from across the country who are involved in this initiative, um, both physicians, uh, but also other healthcare providers, researchers, um, and again, patients and families. One of the unique things about the Canadian Pediatric Cancer Consortium is that um, you know one of the three leaders is the parent of a child who survived cancer um, because of one of these new drugs, who's you know got a different perspective than I do, and and uh, um, I've gained so much in listening to to that person, um, uh, Adrian, um, be able to tell us her story, which you know, in some ways is the same story, but it's not the same story, if you know what I mean. Do, do the two sides kind of ever clash? Is there ever a, a disagreement? And then, well, I'm sorry, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm poking the bear, you can just say next question. We can, we can, we can edit this Oh, out. no, no, these are, these are great questions. And this is all very, you know, real and present and current for me. I think, um, I think that um, maybe disagreements, maybe it's just, we need to share more information and listen better to each other. I, one of the exercises that we're going through with this new um, collaboration is what should our priorities be? Um, you know, for me, um, my priorities have always been because I'm focused on helping develop new drugs, issues related to that. But that may not be the priority of a person who lives um, in an indigenous community, or it may not be the priority of a patient who finished cancer treatment 10 years ago and has some sort of disability. And we need to, we, we need to, to, to listen to each other and be open to what other people's priorities are when they don't align with mine. So yes, I would say there are some disagreements, but I think those are a result uh, of the fact that um, in some ways, we're all still learning new ways to listen to each other. An, an amazing thing to hear because again, I, 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 I when I think of researchers, I often think of, you know, a very cold lab with very uh, distinct, serious people um, being very, uh, very, very careful with everything that they're doing with controls and non-controls and things of that nature. So um, it's, it's amazing to hear that you guys are, uh, are moving in that direction. Um, I want to take a moment and kind of switch, switch gears a little bit um, to what we were discussing a little bit earlier on, um, really before we started the podcast, 
Um, and that was in regards to some of the changes that are happening at SickKids. Um, I know for a while now, SickKids has been very focused on family-centered care, um, taking a much more holistic approach and understanding that, yes, the patient is sick, but that affects every member of the family and how, how can um, SickKids as a hospital address that, um, as well as you know, SickKids focusing on being a hospital without an address, so to speak, um, where they're able to provide care to children um, who, again, don't necessarily live close by to the hospital, but are able to provide supporting care to, uh, to those types of children. Um, can you elaborate a little bit about uh, some of the changes that are going on? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a hospital spokesperson. And uh, I, uh, you know, I, um, some of these initiatives um, um, certainly uh, involve the cancer and blood diseases program. Um, but I, uh, I may not. So you can speak to, to yeah. that in particular if you'd like. So, so um, one of the things I, I think is a great example of how we changed our practice to be more family centered um, was that through most of my career, when doctors made patient rounds every day, they would go to a conference room and sit down with the other doctors and have a list of the patients and talk about all the patients. And then they would go and they would go, you know, individually and see the patients, the the, the residents or the fellows, the trainees would have gone early in the morning and seen the patients and they would come and do the report. And then the, the, the faculty, the staff doctors would go and follow up. Um, one of the first changes was that when we began to bring nurses into our rounds um, to participate in those discussions. Um, and then an, an, the next evolution was that the nurses would actually present the patients because you know what? They're the people who are with the patients like all day, every day, right? They, they have a better feel for what's going on with these patients in many ways than the doctor who might pop in for five minutes. Um, You're the first doctor I've ever heard say that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> My wife's a nurse. That's the only reason I say that. No, but that's really turning things on its head. It's actually, uh, actually incredible that, um, you know, doctors have the humility to, to um, you know, they might have all the knowledge, but um, they have the humility to allow some of the nurses to do that. That's well, incredible. You know, full disclosure, I've been married to a nurse for over 35 years and um, listening <laughs> to nurses is very important. Um, My mom's a nurse. I get it. Um, <laughs> so we're all here. <laughs> but, but, but the full development of this was really when we learned how to make family centered rounds and my colleague, Sarah Alexander here at Sick Kids was really the champion of this in the pediatric cancer and blood diseases program. And so rather than sitting in a room and looking at a list of, of um, patients' names, we would walk around to every patient's room um, and have that same discussion outside the door with the patient's nurse. And the door could be open if the family wanted to participate in rounds just to listen in or to come up and talk about um, issues they were concerned about. Um, you give them that option or they just open the door and listen? We gave everyone the option to come and be a part of rounds every day. Um, and what this did, I think, was really to improve communication with the patients and families because, you know, the nurse would come in and hear something from a, a, a patient or a parent. Then the, the resident or the fellow would come in and hear something and talk about the plan. And then the staff doctor would come in and hear something and, and talk about the plan. And I think we've all been in a conversation where you can um, – say the same thing and use different words and people hear different things. And sometimes it became like a, you know, situation of broken telephone. And so this family centered rounds, having not just a series of presentations, but a, a, a true discussion with the patient and the family, if they chose to participate, um, 
was I think really revolutionary and did so much to, to, to improve our patients' understanding of what was happening to them um, and what the plan was in a way that, that didn't happen before. Now, sadly, COVID wrecked a lot of that and we're still not quite back to that, but, but um, I think that's a, a great example of true family-centered care is when families are a part of those discussions. And again, we as physicians had to learn how to change our conversations, right? Because the people who were listening to us, our patients and their families, they didn't go to medical school. They don't talk the medical language that I do, but we need to be able to speak to them in a way that, that uh, allows them to be fully integrated into those conversations. And so um, I think that's just one of many examples of how family-centered care is really the best care. To play devil's advocate though, do you find that it can cause more problems having that family-centered help instead of just the doctors figuring out what's going on on their own? It's a lot of information. It's a lot of information. Well, um, I should point out that th this is, this is optional. Um, the, the patients don't have to attend. The parents don't have to attend. All they, all they have to do is close the door. We actually got little signs made um, that are sort of red or green and they would put it, you know, if the parent uh, or the kid didn't feel like talking, and they could just flip it to the red one that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be in rounds today. Um, so it, it really should be up to them. And some of them, some of them don't want to hear this stuff, right? I think there are many adolescents uh, in particular who um, just want it to all be over. And they sleep through most of their hospitalization when they're getting chemotherapy because they, it's so boring and it's, and it's, it, there's just nothing good about it. And they just want it to be over as quickly as possible. So, um, you know, and we've worked hard to address some of those things. Many of the treatments when I came to sick kids in 2010 that required multiple days of hospitalization um, with the incredible team that we have, we've been able to move those to the day hospital, um, which is something that, that uh, we implemented around that time so that patients could come in and receive a day's worth of hospital treatments, but still be able to go home and sleep in their beds at night and then come back the next day and get their treatments. Um, I think we would like to be able to take that even further and deliver more of this um, treatment at home. Um, but we still have a lot of work to do uh, with um, some of the issues around that to be able to do it safely and effectively. And uh, we're kind of coming towards the end of our, our discussion. Um, but uh, perhaps you can share. So, you know, obviously you're pushing as much as you can to have people be back in their own home environment and what's comfortable for them um, for their benefit. Uh, I would venture to guess because they have a great, uh, you know, they have, they, they're more comfortable there. Um, where do you see organizations? Um, you know, obviously you don't, you don't really know High Lifeline very well. You've just, you just met us really. Um, but organizations uh, such as High Lifeline and uh, Camp Ooch and other, other organizations, um, how do you see their benefit uh, in patients in, or, or do you see their benefit in any, in any meaningful way or, or not? Um, and again, feel free to, uh, to skip this question if you, if you like, but um, in actual fact, there's a lot, of, a lot of patient support, social support organizations out there. Um, and as I think kids move um, more towards the model of trying to be home as much as possible, um, you know, in my, in my opinion, and, and um, there's been a number of doctors that have shared this opinion with me, 
um, they see the importance of these community organizations even more. Um, but I'm curious if, if you've seen anything in the research or anything of that nature. Well, I have a personal experience with that. I, um, when I was at uh, Vanderbilt, um, I knew that uh, there was a, a, a summer uh, camp for um, cancer patients there as well. And I had a number of patients go. And occasionally I would drive out uh, one evening uh, to go to, you know, some of the campfire activities in the evening after I finished my day. Um, and I knew that many of my patients talked about how great it was and the friends they made and how, how um, important it was to them. But, you know, I didn't really fully understand it. Again, I, I needed to listen in a different way or experience in a different way. One of the busiest weeks of my life was the week that I volunteered to be both the camp doctor who stayed on site for a week and the counselor for the youngest boys cabin. Um, and just asking for it there, Doc. <laughs> I had no idea. And, and it was one of the most rewarding weeks of my life and um, as well as one of the busiest. And I learned firsthand how these types of, of, of support services are absolutely necessary for children who are facing life-threatening illnesses. And not just the patients, they're their, their, their families, you know, an even more powerful experience with sibling camp. So the brothers and sisters of these children going through um, cancer treatment and the emotions that they had and didn't really have the, the, the uh, you know, enough of an outlet for it. So I think that, that what your organization does and other organizations like Camp Ooch or Camp Fire Circle now, um, Childhood Cancer Canada, so many other organizations are really the glue, the fabric that helps these patients and their families hold their very challenging, scary, and difficult lives together. And without that, um, I don't know how they would get through this and, and have any chance of being intact. So thank you all for what, what, what you do and what you bring to the table for those patients and their families. Well, um, I want to end our podcast by, by thanking you. Thank you, thank you for um, having the open mind to continue learning and hearing and understanding and um, creating such incredible policy. And, and I, I think that, you know, one of the things we said that we, we look for is, is, is how can the everyman take something away from these incredible experiences and, and situations that doctors and patients often find themselves in, even though they might not ever be in those situations. Um, and I think, uh, hearing from you, it, it, it's a breath of fresh air on, to understand um, continuing education, continuing learning, perhaps in a way that uh, a doctor wouldn't think is the is the way that they sh they might need need to continue learning. Um, and and having that open mind uh, really sounds incredible, and the impact that you've been able to make. So thank you for that, and thank you very much for your time. As we know how how busy you are, and and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely, thank you so much. Very very insightful, and definitely one of the best ones. We've it's had so been far. a privilege to speak with you. Thank you, and uh, um, I I look forward to uh, to perhaps being in touch and connecting outside of the podcast, mm -hmm. and we can uh, discuss perhaps so um, different ways that we might be able to collaborate. So thank you for that. That sounds great. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Dr. Whitlock, for joining us today and sharing with us all the up-and-coming research that you and the rest of uh, pediatric cancer community is 
doing right now uh, i really enjoyed this conversation and it really touched on a lot of different aspects of how cancer is being looked at today how the hospital is including families into the care plan bringing nurses into the conversation as they're the ones that are spending the most time with the patients and the families and getting the full story and understanding of what's really going on um, discussing the cpcc which is absolutely incredible 23 million dollars to the consortium uh, it's going to do a lot of amazing, amazing work. Um, you know, there's so much in this conversation to unpack that, you know, just listening to it once probably won't be enough for everybody. So please listen to it again. Take it all in because of what was discussed in this conversation really was a lot of groundbreaking information that will be coming out soon. I hope you guys all enjoyed it. Thank you again, Dr. Whitlock. And thank you to the listeners for choosing to listen to us today. On Air with High is a High Lifeline Canada project, produced by myself, Brian Strasberg, hosted by myself and the executive director of High Lifeline Canada, Mordechai Rothman. Guests are booked by Orly Davis and graphic design is done by Candace Alper. On Air with High is edited by myself and the music is provided by Music Unlimited at pixabay.com. To learn more about High Lifeline and how you can help us, please visit our website at highlifelinecanada.org. Don't forget to subscribe and give us that five-star rating. And of course, share it with all your friends.